Three weeks ago, we finished going through the revelatory part of the book of Revelation. Uh, the week prior to, to that, we'd finished God's revelation of how human history would end with Christ's final defeat of Satan and, and the current heaven and earth uh, being destroyed, followed in that final defeat. Uh, those events came in conjunction with the, the final judgment that we saw would consign all unbelievers to the eternal lake of fire. And then three weeks ago, we had just a, a brief glimpse, really, of, of what God has applied of the things that come after human history, the, the eternal state, where we will live for all eternity in, in the presence of, of God, in, in this new heaven and a new earth that will be created. That This new creation we, we saw will be untainted by sin. And God the Father will dwell in the midst of it. God the Son will be there as well. And, and we will accompany all the redeemed providing unblemished worship for all eternity. The, the glimpse, as I said, was small. It was very limited. It left us with lots of questions. But the one thing that was clear is it is glorious. The, the new heaven, new earth will be glorious. Words failed John as he tried to describe that, that new heaven and earth. He, he tried to describe a, a city that reflects the glory of God as the light source that then lights up the entire earth with the glory of God. With the end of verse 5 of Revelation chapter 22, John's vision of that future event is finished. Yet, if you look at your Bibles, John's letter is not quite complete. You may recall from the beginning of this series, through this book, this study here, that John wrote this letter to seven specific churches that were dealing with real issues in his day. He wrote this letter because the issues the churches were facing were, were threatening to those churches. And he wrote to these seven churches because they were representative of the kinds of issues that, that all churches will face. In fact, the kind of issues churches face throughout the church age, not just in John's day. So John wrote this letter to those churches. By extension, John wrote this letter for us. John still has the task of, of wrapping up the letter in a way that will ensure that we don't lose sight of the fact that this letter is meant to deal with issues. That the final lesson that, that John leaves us with, the, the lesson that, that comes out of what we'll call the epilogue here, the, the closing of this letter, is that God's revelation demands a response. That's always true when we encounter God's revelation. It's particularly true when we encounter this revelation. God's revelation demands a response. Hopefully we, we recognize when we read any passage of Scripture this principle. But when, the, when, when we're dealing with prophetic events, we may be tend, tempted to set those aside and treat them as academic. They're, they're telling us what will come. No, that revelation of what will come demands a response in the here and now. The, the final part of John's letter, his, his uplog breaks into three sections, naturally it breaks into these three sections. So this evening, we'll just work our way through these final three sections, seeing that each one of these urges us to, to do something now based on what is coming in the future. God's revelation demands a response. The first section is verses 6 through 9, and, and here we have our first urge. We're urged in this section to, number one, trust the prophecy of the book. We are to trust it. John has shown us 
some incredible things. If you think back through the visions that he's been given, the chapters we've reviewed, these are incredible things. What are we to do with all of it? Do we believe it? I, I don't know about you, but, but when I hear far-fetched stories, my, my doubt meter goes up and, and my trust meter goes down. Someone starts talking about, for example, aliens setting up a base on the dark side of the moon and my eyes will glaze over. You know, they're just flapping their, their, their mouth. Well, some of the stuff that John has seen in this vision seems almost as far-fetched with the difference that this is God speaking. This is revelation. We, we dare not let our eyes glaze over. We need to trust the prophecy of the book. That is why the first thing that we have in verses 6 and 7 is Christ's own validation of the prophecy. Christ's validation. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the, the God of the Spirit of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 6, as we start there, we have a speaker. He said to me that that speaker is the one that's continuing to speak to John. It's one of the angels that, that poured out one of the final bowls of the judgment. The angel gave John the tour of the New Jerusalem, and, and he's continuing to, to speak to John as, as this letter is wrapped up here. And, and the angel attests that the God himself is the ultimate source of, of what John has seen. Even though they pass through an angelic messenger, such as himself, each of the visions came through an angel, God himself is the source. God's purpose was to show John what must, as he says, soon take place. That the idea of soon in, in verse 6, it, it can mean that the events will happen quickly when they come, but more likely it means that these events are imminent. We've seen the, the doctrine of imminency from the very beginning of the letter. We've dealt with this many times. Imminent means that these things could come at any time. There's nothing else that must happen before these can occur. Nothing remains undone that must happen first. That means we live in a time when Christ could return at any moment. The rapture could occur and the tribulation could begin at any time. In verse 7, the speaker changes, though, and Christ himself speaks. The words of Christ are conveyed. It's possible that the angel is the one conferring, conveying the words, but it's a direct quotation from, from, from Christ. In many of your Bibles, if you have a red letter Bible, verse 7 is going to be in red. Is Christ speaking. It's possible that John hears Christ directly. So not only does the angel attest to the veracity of, of the revelation, Christ himself attests that the words that have been spoken are true. Christ assures John that, that he is coming quickly. There, there's nothing that John needs to wait for to, to occur before he comes. Christ states that he is coming quickly and there's a blessing to any person who heeds the words of the revelation that the John's received. That the fact that a person is blessed by Christ, that indicates, again, that the words are faithful and true. You're only blessed when you believe true things. Well, Christ blesses those who obey what is faithful and true. These words. So we have Christ's validation of the prophecy, and in the next two verses, 
we have John's response to the prophecy. Look at verse 8. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. We've seen this before and again now. We see John momentarily overwhelmed by by what he sees and what he hears. John attests that he is indeed the one who who heard these things. He's the one who wrote these things down. He, He heard and he saw these things. That was the combined ways in which John has received this revelation up to this point. And now when he hears these words from Christ, after just touring this glorious new Jerusalem, having seen that John falls before his angelic guide in, in worship. The last time we saw John do this was in Revelation 19, when John was shown the, the marriage of the, the lamb to his bride, the, the church. There, and again now, every, John is rebuked. He's rebuked by the angel for falling before him, the angel in worship. The angel rebukes John and tells John that he is a fellow servant of John and your brother and the prophets. When, when he says it that way, the angel actually does two things. One, he elevates John to a level of all the previous prophets. John is equal to the previous prophets. But secondly, he also exalts this prophetic office as an office that the angel is glad to serve. He is a servant of John and his fellow prophets. He is happy, as angelic as he is, he is happy to serve these prophets, fulfilling their purpose. Of course, we, we recognize that the angel again also makes it clear that God alone is worthy of worship. God is the only proper object of worship. All worship must point to God and, and must focus on God and God alone. God's revelation demands a response. As our book comes to a close, John is given, first of all, an urge to, to trust the prophecy of the book. As we move on into the next verses of the next section, we see a, a second urge, another urge. In verses 10 through 15, we have the urge to wait. Wait for the prophecy of the book. One of the things that, that we may have lost track of by now, uh, because this series has taken us a long time, it's been... 25 sermons ago with a whole lot of interruptions in between that, that we started the, the first chapter of this book. So we've taken a long time. So it, it may be hard for us to, to remember that the John has been given these visions, as I said at the beginning, to address current crises that, that were facing real churches. There were real issues that, that the believers were dealing with. These were issues that they had in their lives and, and in their churches. These churches were not sitting around having intellectual debates about how history might end. They, they weren't sitting around discussing around coffee whether or not Christ would come in a certain way and when it might come and how things would happen. Would rapture come before the tribulation in the middle or what? They, these were academic conversations. These were churches who were trying to survive. They needed a reason to hold on. And that is what God has provided for them through John as they're urged now to wait for the victory that has been shown, the the victory of the coming of the Lord. We're going to break these six verses into two smaller parts as as this urge to wait is is based on promises that Christ gives. 
In verses 10 through 12, we have Christ's promise of a righteous judgment. Verse 10. And he that be the angel again said to me, Do not seal up the words of the book, or the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep him holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. A few times in our study of Revelation, we mentioned the, the book of Daniel because there's a lot of overlap. Daniel also saw some of these end-time events, how history would come to conclusion. He's given similar visions. Daniel was told, however, to seal up some of what he was shown. According to Daniel chapter 12, verses 4, as well as verse 9, Daniel was told to seal some things up, to not reveal what he saw. By, by contrast, John here is specifically told to not do that. He is not to seal up what he has seen. What he has been given pertains to the immediate needs of the church. This is for the here and now. Surprisingly, John's told in verse 11 that he really should not expect that there's going to be widespread change during the time that remains before the end. God has apparently determined that a considerable part, a considerable part of humanity to reap the consequences of sinful choices. Rather than looking for large-scale transformation and repentance, the churches should be looking for the return of Christ. They can have confidence that, that when Christ comes, he will render, as it says here, to every man according to what he has done. In other words, the, the churches can be confident that Christ, when he comes, he will render righteous judgment. He will judge both those who do right and those who do wrong. Of course, there, there is an implicit warning in, in these verses as well as an encouragement. Every reminder of Christ's judgment can serve to motivate sinners to, to turn from their, their sinful ways. Judgment serves that purpose. We, at the same time, we should not read verse 11 in, in any sense as saying that, that the die is cast, that, that there's no longer any chance of repentance. Let's not read it that way. There, there's always this warning in, inherent in that. In fact, in just a few verses, the absence made clear that there will be some who will repent. And that offer still stands. What we should recognize, though, is there's no reason to anticipate large-scale repentance. We live in this same short time that Christ is addressing here at these churches. This short time before Christ's return, we are in the church age, the same age as, as these seven churches. God will decide who will be left alone in their sinful choices and who God will grant the gift of repentance to. We, we should not expect large-scale repentance, but we should nonetheless pray for much repentance. We should work for much repentance. We should warn people of, of coming faithfully. We the hope of, of Christ faithfully. And we should pray for people earnestly. Following Christ's promise of righteous judgment, we, we, we have a second promise. In verses 13 and 15, we also have Christ giving a promise of reward. Verse 13, Christ adds, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, Christ will get the final word on everything, including giving out final blessings to, to those who are his. Notice in verse 14 how the blessings are described. Items are used from this recent tour that John got of, of the New Jerusalem. The rewards that, that Christ is promising are ultimate rewards. Those who are blessed by Christ will, will be able to have eternal security. They will be able to enjoy the, the elements of the New Jerusalem. There will be access to the tree of life. There will be entrance to the eternal city. These are ultimate rewards that are there for those who have washed robes. But by now, I, I would hope that we've looked enough through this book where we understand these are images of redeemed people. These are images of those who are washed by the blood of the Lamb because they've accepted Christ as Savior. They, they're, they are God's people. They are the ones for whom Christ was slain and for whom he now lives as he was depicted in chapter 5. They are his people. By contrast, those that he does not bless, they're, they're completely outside the new earth and the new heaven. Their, their final destiny is the lake of fire. They cannot participate in any of the new creation. Those whose lives are characterized by sin will have no place with God's people. They're, they're totally excluded. God's people alone receive the reward. So this promise is, is a second promise of hope for churches in crisis. In our current time, it is all too often appears as if those described by the traits of verse 15, those who are sorcerers and immoral and murderers and idolaters, it seems as if those are the people getting ahead in this age. They're the ones making progress. They're the ones dominating. How different things will be in eternity. Let's not allow the, the current mirage for is what it really is. Let's not allow what things look like now. Understand this is just a mirage. Let's not let that shake us from the reality of the future promise of Christ. Christ has given us the reality. Those who are unbelievers will have no part in the eternal reward. Those who are Christ will be blessed in the eternal future. God's revelation demands a response. The urge to wait for the prophecy of a second urge that we have in our epilogue given us this, this urge to respond to what we've seen. The third and final urge is given in verses 16 through 20. It's the urge to respond to the prophecy. As I've been saying throughout, we are always to respond to God's revelation. Now that expectation is made explicit. Look at verses 16 and 17. Here we have Christ's invitation to eternal life. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit says to the bride, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. 
Jesus explicitly says that he is involved in revealing the contents of this letter to John. I, Jesus. Not the lamb as he's been identified so many times in this letter. Not the word of God or the king of kings and the Lord of lords, all these various titles we've seen of Christ. Not even Jesus Christ as he's been identified in the first verse of the letter. Simply, I, Jesus. The historical Jesus. The, the, the Jesus that John knew personally. The one that John walked with. The one that John talked with. The one that John leaned against in that, that final night when this meal that we celebrated today was instituted. That last supper. And John leaned against his breast. The one that John watched die. The one that John saw rise from the dead. This is the Jesus who asserts that he was involved in providing this revelation through his angel for the churches. In in fact, in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. That you is plural. I testify to you. Jesus is not speaking to only John at this point. He's speaking to all the people in the seven churches. He is speaking to the people they represent. He is speaking to us. It's a plural you. All those that will come that need to hear these words. And look what he says. Jesus assures us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is calling for him to come. In other words, return. The Holy Spirit wants Jesus to to come and receive his reward of glory. Receive the glory and honor that he deserves. We began tonight with all glory, laud, and honor. The Spirit is saying, come, receive that. He wants the world to see that, that Jesus is the root and the descendant of David, the rightful king. He wants the world to see that Jesus is the bright and morning star, the one worthy of all worship. Likewise, Jesus knows that his bride, the church, collectively is calling for him to come. The church wants the Savior to return, to to come in victory. Collectively, the church is waiting for that day with bated breath. Yet notice what Jesus says. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. In other words, Christ is issuing a final invitation here to to join those who are waiting for his reward. To add oneself to those who are yearning for him to come. It's an invitation to those who have not, to this moment, yearned for him to come, to join those who are waiting. In other words, this is an invitation for salvation. It's an invitation to join in the blessings of eternal life. A person reading this letter A person hearing these words is invited by Christ to believe in him, to to join with the Spirit calling for him to turn, to to add his or her voice to the the chorus of the church that's calling for his return. The reason that he has not come is to allow this invitation to remain open. The invitation to come to Christ at no cost whatsoever stands until the moment he returns. Folks, that that truth ought to hit us right between the eyes. Do we believe that our Savior has offered to accept those who come to him eternal life? Do we believe that? 
If so, we need to put that belief into action by sharing this offer. Fairly often I I hear people sharing information about a good deal that they've stumbled on. Uh, A mother knows that there's a good deal on diapers somewhere, so so she texts all of her mother friends to, to know about it, to know you can get diapers at this store at a good price. A wife finds a good buy at the grocery store and she calls her friends to tell them. Men find a good buy on ammo and we share it in the lobby of the church. We like to share good deals. Well, the best deal anyone could ever find is this one. The offer of free eternal life. No cost. Eternal salvation is ours to share. The offer stands until Christ's return. Are we sharing this offer with others? Christ gives his final invitation here in this letter. For that matter, it's the final invitation in in Scripture. And it's immediately followed by his warning against unbelief. Christ's warning against unbelief in verses 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. The warning given here echoes words of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, where the nation of Israel is warned against adding or subtracting to the, the words of the law. And in the context in Deuteronomy, instead of altering the law in any fashion, Israel is urged to obey it. Well, as the final part of John's words that he receives, we have another warning about adding or subtracting to God's revelation. We dare not add or subtract to what God has revealed. These are strong warnings. Anyone who adds to the book will suffer greatly. The particular plague that's promised isn't specified. He said that the plagues which are written in this book will be added to him, but let's just say every plague we've seen in this book is horrible. There is no good plague. So this is a stern warning. Similarly, subtracting from the book proves that that the person deserves exclusion from the eternal blessings. Well, that means a lake of fire instead. So when you put these together, these warnings are warnings against adding or subtracting to what John has given is a failure to submit to God. It's a refusal to obey the word of God. That is unbelief. One who is steadfast in unbelief is an unbeliever. Apparently, some who hear this letter will fall into that category. So a final warning is provided that, that works in conjunction with the invitation to eternal life. The, the message is to turn from unbelief and believe. What we should note is that these warnings are extended to everyone who hears. Again, let's recall that this letter is given initially to churches that were facing many challenges. If you remember back to chapters 2 and 3, some of those challenges dealt with false teachers and, and false prophets. Everyone who hears this prophecy from John is to recognize that this prophecy is not to be changed by those who might claim to be exercising the gift of prophecy. Instead, the listeners have a responsibility to discern anything that threatens the finality 
of this prophecy. This is God's final word on the matter, presumably until the return of Christ. This is all God has to say. The thing that should strike us is that nothing has happened to cancel these warnings. These warnings are given in a way that they stand until Christ returns. We're still waiting for the return of Christ. So these warnings remain in effect. This fact should give us great pause about any aspect of the charismatic movement that that claims to, to be hearing new revelation from God. We should not look for God to add or subtract to his word when God has said that he will not do that. Now, I won't take the time this evening to argue that these final verses represent the closing of the canon, but I'm convinced they do. When when John completes this letter, the final apostle finishes the the final revelation that God has for the New Testament church. What, What God has given is sufficient for his church to endure the remainder of this period. This is all that the church needs for the church age. This short time that, that Christ says is here until he returns. Remember, we're told in verse 10 that the time is near. These things, we're told in verse 6, must soon take place. We have no need to look for further revelation for God. We have what we need for this time. So let's not be distracted by the charismatic movement that says God has given new information. But I want to make things even more personal. I think we need to take care in our own speaking that, that we do not inadvertently indicate that we are expecting God to add to his revelation. Frankly, I cringe every time I hear someone say something along the lines of, God told me, and then you fill in the blank. God told me to go to the mission field. God told me to marry so-and-so. God told me to find a new job. Now, now I recognize that, that most people are, when they're saying that, they're, they're saying that they have a, a strong internal impression that they should do something. That, that they have this internal feeling. And, and furthermore, that I think usually when people say that, they recognize that their impression aligns with God's word. So they put those things together and they, they ascertain that, that what they want to do is consistent with what God has revealed is proper for a believer to do, and they've interpreted it as God providentially working within their lives to accomplish his will to lead them in their decision. But we should say that. We should say that God is providentially leading us to do something. Not that he's told us to do something. That the moment we cross over into the language of God telling us, we are walking pretty close to the same error that the charismatic movement makes. Plus, I fear we are minimizing the warnings of these verses in the ears of, those, of people who listen to us because it makes it more difficult to, to discern new information from God. God doesn't give new information. God has given us his sure word. We, we hold it in our hands. We don't need to look for anything else. And, and the moment we look for more is the moment that we're opening the door for unbelief in our own lives. We have Christ's warning against unbelief in verses 18 and 19. This is followed then with the final promise in verse 20. Christ's promise to return. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. John quotes Jesus one final time as as promising to come quickly. 
And actually, this is the third time in this short epilogue that Jesus has said these words. Three times he has said, I am coming quickly. When, when something is repeated this many times in such a short passage, we should take it to heart. Our Lord has promised that he's coming quickly. The Spirit has called for him to come. The bride, the church, has called for him to come. Christ's loyal followers have called for him to come. In, in response, Christ is John concludes by responding to Christ's promise with his own words. Come, Lord Jesus. Our Lord is coming. There is nothing that remains undone before he breaks through the clouds and he calls his bride to the wedding. Our response to trials of, of this life, our response to, to yearning for our Savior, our, our response to, to the promise that he's coming ought to be the same response that John gives. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. God's revelation demands a response. The third urge is the urge to respond to the prophecy of this book. Let's look at the final verse, the, the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This letter was written to be read to the churches. The final words that our Lord has John leaves ringing in their ears, the final words that are ringing in our ears as we finish this book the, the, is the words of the Lord's transforming grace. From first to last, the way we overcome is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, this is encouraging us to be overcomers. As a church, we are to be overcomers. There's rewards for those who overcome. The way we overcome is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May this grace be with us all. Amen. God's revelation demands a response. That's the main idea. The main idea from the final epilogue of the letter. God's revelation demands a response. We've been urged to trust the prophecy of the book. We've been urged to wait for the prophecy of the book. We've been urged to respond to the prophecy of the book. We can only do this through the transforming grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet the question that, that we should leave with this evening is the question, are we allowing the transforming grace of the Lord to cause us to respond to these urges? Are we responding to the revelation of our Lord? If we are, then our lives will show the evidence. We're living in the time of the church. We are waiting for the return of the Lord. He is coming quickly. We are looking for him to come. God has given his revelation so that we can weather whatever crisis may come to us in the church as we wait. Are we responding to his revelation with obedient faith. God's revelation demands a response. Let's pray. Father, it's been a joy to work our way through this amazing letter that you've given us. This revelation of what is to come. Knowing that having that laid out before us is to give us the, the strength to endure what we face in the present. Father, this letter shows we are on the victorious side. 
We are hearing frequently about being on the right side of history. Father, the only way to be on the right side of history is to be on the side that wins when history ends. And we see that as the side of our Lord's and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who will return in victory. Father, I pray that you would use your word to encourage all of us. May we become men and women who go through our days living in light of this victory. May we be living our days encouraging others to warn them of the judgment that's coming and the offer of a free gift of life that is extended until the moment our Savior comes. And may we live our lives eagerly anticipating that return. We pray this in his glorious name. Amen.